This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. In this short story, Marjorie signs up for a writing retreat and finds herself an outcast amidst a gaggle of young, eager authors. But one evening, over a few drinks with the group, she has an unexpected 15 minutes of fame in the micro-spotlight of the writing workshop. As she shares a secret talent with the group, she flashes back to an encounter she once had with Truman Capote. Martha Clarkson is a writer and photographer who lives in Kirkland, Washington. She writes poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction, and has been published in a variety of literary magazines, and has had two notable stories in Best American Non-Required Reading. She corresponds with friends on one of five cherished typewriters. Yes, there's an IBM Selectric, and it is Olive, in case you were wondering. This is a work of fiction. Her Voices, Her Room, An Encounter with Truman Capote, written by Martha Clarkson, read by Irene Ziegler. Marjorie had her impressions of Truman Capote down pat. You could have sworn it was Truman, returned from the dead, although she looked nothing like him, so you had to close your eyes. In January, she enrolled in a three-day haiku workshop on the coast. She signed up for it without understanding haiku intricacies or ever having written poetry, Japanese or otherwise. The last night of the workshop, the two teachers, who were married to other people but slept together during the workshop weekends, assembled the group around the fireplace of the old inn. They rolled a large whiteboard into the room. The wine bottles from dinner had been drained, but the lesbian with cauliflower braids came in carrying a tray of rose-colored juice glasses and a bottle of doers. Upon arriving at the workshop, Marjorie had been dismayed to see that all of the students were under 30 years old. She would be 75 next month. She hadn't imagined so many young people giving up an extended weekend to drive to the coast to write three-line poems. She tired of hearing them clomp up and down the vinyl-clad stairs during the night to smoke outside. She watched as they filed out of the inn to go to town without her during the day. At the teacher's beckoning, they piled onto the two sofas in front of the fireplace. But there wasn't enough space. Hadn't been the whole three days. And Marjorie once again sat in the cushionless Edwardian armchair behind one of the sofas, looking at the backs of half of the students. 
The teacher said they were going to create a group haiku and asked for a word list. Words with haiku potential were shouted into the room. Marjorie stayed quiet. She'd written 56 haiku in the course of three days, even though the assignment was to write four. She hadn't volunteered to read any out loud. The teachers halted the verbal stoning and asked them to create a haiku from the list of words. Marjorie got up and walked to the hearth. She poured some scotch into a juice glass and walked back to sit again in the hard chair. She pulled a Valium from her pocket and used the scotch to get it down her throat. The female teacher, who had drunk many glasses of wine before and during dinner, directed that the first haiku should be a thank you to the proprietor of the inn for his well-cooked meals, his constant chopping in the kitchen, yielding, as she put it, the finest in coastal gourmet. Marjorie personally didn't think a leek broth lunch and cold cereal for breakfast warranted this kind of tribute, but she stayed silent, enjoying the burn of the scotch on her throat. Catcalling, shouting, and sexual inferences were pelted at the teachers as the students took a circuitous route to create the haiku. With much erasing and loud laughter, the words were finally put in their proper order, pared down to meet syllable requirements, and everyone clapped. Feeling warm and bold from the scotch and valium, Marjorie sat forward in the chair, and when the cacophony died down, said, I'll do an imitation of Truman Capote, if you like. Marjorie first encountered Truman Capote in 1960 when she lived in Kansas. He came to investigate the clutter murders for his book, In Cold Blood. She'd been married to a veal processor named Leon for nine years. In high school... She'd been a reporter on the newspaper with every intention of moving to Kansas City to pursue journalism, but she turned up pregnant at 18. The veal processor married her, and by the time Truman Capote came to town, she had four children. Marjorie drove to the Windsor Hotel the evenings he was in town, hoping to catch a glimpse of him. At home, the children were in front of the TV, Marjorie counting on her nine-year-old, Dickie, to maintain order. The veal tyrant was in his favorite bar out on the highway. The first night, she sat in the corner of the hotel's lobby in a low mohair armchair, reading his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. It was hard to keep her concentration on the pages she'd read before. Finally, Truman came in and asked at the desk for messages, bouncing up and down on his toes while he waited for the clerk. Marjorie was not a forward woman. Just the nerve to wait in the hotel lobby was beyond her normal bravado. She stayed in the corner, eyeing his actions over the top of the book, her heart racing. Her mind played a continuous loop of imaginary conversations, but she didn't approach him. On subsequent evenings, she decided to read other books. She thought that reading his own book looked too staged. Should he look her way, which he hadn't yet, He'd think she was just another adoring fan wishing to smother him with an autograph request. After that first evening, he did not appear again on the nights Marjorie could manage an hour or two away. She had to be home before Leon wove his big Buick into the driveway and discovered she was out. She couldn't chance any more of his rage. Marjorie talked to no one about the incidences with Leon, 
but shielded the truth with closed curtains and layers of face makeup that never quite did the trick. I can do it, Marjorie said as the other students stared at her. I can imitate Truma Capote. She swallowed a belt of scotch, noticing that the glass was almost empty. It'd been years since Marjorie had been in the company of so many people, let alone the center of attention. She sat up straight and licked her lips. She leaned forward, as though telling a secret, and let it fly. Let's all go round the room, and you can all tell me who you're having affairs with. The students burst out laughing, because, indeed, she sounded just like him. The combination of her perfectly executed impersonation and the fact that she was the quiet old lady in the corner suddenly bursting out in front of a crowd cracked them up. What a hoot! The braided lesbian shouted. From Cubby, the guy who sold rollerblades, More Truman! The teacher's laughter turned their eyes to slits. The impromptu whiteboard haiku, forgotten. Marjorie licked her lips again. It's a scientific fact that if you live in California, you lose one point of your IQ every year. More laughter. Cubby's guffaws the loudest, knee-slapping and reaching for the scotch bottle. In the chilly room of a creaky inn on the coast in January, Marjorie was a star. On the day of Truman Capote's next trip to Garden City, Marjorie planned to drive the Dodge downtown and be on the platform to meet his train. She knew there would be a crowd, but this time she was determined to stride right up to him, hand outstretched, and introduce herself. She got a late start. The night before had been rough. Leon came home from the bar after midnight, loud and careening between her dresser and the footboard. He'd railed about everything from a department store bill to Lamb's new popularity to the style of her nightgown. He only hit her once. Then the children were let out of school early because of a breakout of lice found in the scalps of the unkempt Gramble children. The bus dropped them off before they were expected, as Marjorie was trying to get ready. They usually straggled in throughout the afternoon, but now stormed the house all at once, requesting cookies and instructions on how to pick through each other's heads to determine if they were lice-infested. They were getting as demanding as their father. She left Dickie in charge and drove off in the old Dodge after pushing away the sticky hands of Calvin and Cora, her first graders. Marjorie got into the car, careful not to muss her dress. She looked in the rearview mirror, adjusted her sunglasses, and tied the chiffon scarf under her chin. She started the engine. She expected that Leon would ask her where she had driven for the 16-mile round trip and why. She had yet to formulate an answer. Meeting Truman's train was her focus. She practiced her greeting. Hello, Mr. Capote. You don't know me, but I'm Mrs. Darnell, and I admire your work. No, too generic. Hello, Mr. Capote. I'm Mrs. Darnell, Garden City short story writer. Hadn't she written a couple of short stories a few years ago before she had children? 
She was unsure if they were any good. She drove along, trying to concoct more stimulating greetings when the steering began to pull to the right. She maneuvered the car over to the pea gravel shoulder. Oh, hell, she said. She enjoyed swearing, and alone in the car was one of the few times she got the chance. Sometimes she'd get behind the wheel and say things like, Damn it, you whoring son of a bitch, just because she could. It wasn't that she'd never changed a tire, but she was in her best outfit, stuck on the side of the road with the world's toughest lug nuts. The last time she'd had a flat in this car, it'd been impossible to loosen the nuts. She waited in the clinic parking lot for two hours for a tow truck, the children shrieking around the hot blacktop, the Dodge's back end jacked and waiting. Marjorie got out of the car and walked around to look at the tire. It was, as she thought, flat. She stood by the side of the car but didn't lean for fear of dirtying her yellow dress, recently bought in secret with the small birthday check from her aunt. She was already late. Truman's train would be arriving any time. After minutes in the sun with no vehicles appearing, Marjorie decided to wait inside the car. Surely someone would stop to see if she was all right. Sun came in the front window, heating up the interior, and Marjorie began to doze. She was awakened by a sudden tapping on the window. She recognized the face as young Bobby Goodwin, Mac's son, dressed in a white shirt with a skinny green tie and tan slacks. Mrs. Darnell, he said, what's the matter? Marjorie waved her hand to indicate she was going to open the door. Bobby stepped aside, and she got out. Oh, Bobby, I'm glad to see you. I've got a flat, she said. As she said this, someone came into her side vision. Marjorie turned her head to see Truman Capote walking toward her, wearing a bright red serge jacket. Bobby said, Oh, Mr. Capote, I'll be right there. You can wait in the car. Marjorie looked at Bobby. What's going on, Bobby? Oh, I'm Mr. Capote's driver. I take him out to Holcomb and back. He turned to Truman again. You go back on in where it's comfortable, Mr. Capote. I'll just be a minute fixing this lady's flat. Truman stepped in closer, and Marjorie saw how short he was. Oh, that's all right, Bobby, he said in his mincing squeak of a voice. Who is this fine lady? Marjorie could feel her face flush. Her manners and her rehearsals in the car came to her, and in a burst. And she said, Mr. Capote... I'm lovely to meet you. I mean, it's lovely to meet you. She put out her hand. I'm Marjorie Darnell. Truman took her hand and said, My pleasure, I'm sure. He slowly dropped her hand and turned to Bobby. Do what you need to do, young man, he said. Bobby went to work on the tire. Won't you join me in the car while we wait? Truman said. Marjorie's legs were shaking as she walked to the car a fancy new Cadillac donated for his visit by the local dealer. This had been a news item on the radio. Their conversation took an easy turn right off the bat. Truman smoked his cigarettes with flourishing hand motions and asked about life in Kansas. He sipped from a monogram silver flask. They discussed books, for they had both just read Dr. Zhivago, and Marjorie asked him to tell her about the art museums in Manhattan. She wished for the tire to never be changed, and for Bobby and Truman, such an unlikely pair, to be forced to let her ride in their car. Bobby returned, 
wiping his hands on his newly pressed trousers. Marjorie reached for the door handle, pulled it, then stopped and turned to Truman. Why, so much time has gone by, you must be getting hungry. Lunch is past, and there won't be anything at the clutter house. Would you like to come to my house for a bite of something? Her sudden bravery frightened and excited her. You do raise a point, my dear woman, he replied, ashing his fifth cigarette in the car's tray. Smoke curled up in front of his left eye. A slight detour won't hurt the day any, he smiled without showing his teeth. You'll follow me then, Marjorie said to Bobby, who had resumed his position in the driver's seat. Certainly, Mrs. Darnell, Bobby said. Marjorie felt the spare tire's confident firmness as she drove home, scouring her mind for what she might serve. There was whiskey, certainly, that Leon kept in the back of his nightstand, and some cheese and crackers, maybe a can of black olives. Marjorie's house was only five minutes away. Bobby pulled into the driveway behind her. She could hear the children's yelps coming from the backyard and hoped they would stay there. Marjorie opened the front door and stepped into the dark entry hall. She untied her scarf and set it on the hall table, leaving her sunglasses on. Bobby and Truman followed her into the living room with its chenille sofa worn on the arms and the dark turquoise curtains blotting out any chance of daylight. She tugged on the draped cords and offered them seats. Bobby wandered through the dining room toward the back of the house, stopping at the kitchen window to watch the children in the yard. Truman nestled into the corner of the sofa, extending his arm across the back as if in his own home. I'll just get some refreshments, Marjorie said. She turned to leave the room. Marjorie, he said. She turned. Yes? My dear, won't you take off those sunglasses? Marjorie looked at the floor, which was darkened by the deeply shaded lenses of the glasses. She noticed his shoes, white with black patent leather sewn over the toe. Oh, she said, adding a slight laugh. <laughs> They're just comfortable, you know, sensitive eyes. She turned to go to the kitchen. He reached out and grabbed her wrist as she tried to pass by him. Marjorie, he said. Take off those glasses. I like to see who I'm talking to. Marjorie looked down at him. His face was determined, jaw clenched, and she knew it was pointless to argue. Hell, 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 she said in her head. She reached her hand up and took them off slowly, folding their white plastic bars one-handed, then letting that hand drop to her side. She watched his eyes as he saw the dark bruise ring around her right eye and the remnants of Revlon's number 12 tan concealer. He stared at her, unblinking. The lies of the last two days ran through her head. I ran into a door. I tripped on that darn oak root. I got an elbow from that rascal Calvin. But she didn't employ one now. Truman tightened his grip on her wrist and talked through his teeth. My Good woman, what's happened to you? When she didn't answer, he looked around the room, and she thought of what he must be seeing. The broken toys, the peeling wallpaper, the general weight of the dark colors in the room. Marjorie blinked back tears. This wonderful, accidental afternoon was coming to a close. 
They could no longer pretend it was just conversing about books, their love of literature, the decline of great art. He patted her hand with his. Now, dear, it seems that you need to get out of this place. Even though he was sunk into her old sofa cushions, his grip stayed true, and she could feel the power in his words. Marjorie nodded, biting her lip. Her chin quivered. Truman released her wrist and let his gaze quickly sweep the room. I imagine you have something to drink in this place, he said. Yes, she said. Of course. She stepped around the end table and looked through the dining room to the window where Bobby stood. The children were gone from the yard in explicit defiance of the rule that they not leave without permission. Yet Bobby continued to stare out through the glass. She sighed and felt her shoulders sag. Images of last night invaded her, and other nights. The broken arm, a couple of black eyes, once a hip welt from his belt. Never at the children, only her. She walked down the hall to their bedroom and opened the door of the dark room. In Leon's nightstand, she found the whiskey bottle. He would notice the exact amount missing. She took the bottle back to the living room and poured two glasses. She wanted to have a drink with Truman and soothe her nerves. Bobby, there's a ginger ale in the refrigerator, she said. Bobby walked into the living room, hands in his pockets. I think I'll just go out and touch up the car a bit, Mrs. Darnell, Bobby said. Marjorie was grateful he could think of an excuse to leave the house. Truman lit a cigarette, and they clinked their glasses in a fragile manner. The conversation from the car resumed. The Met, Park Avenue, how to understand the clutter murders. Then Truman got up from the sofa. The clock on the mantel told her she'd kept him from his research for just under an hour. He stood next to the coffee table, and she stood up, towering next to him. You must find your way, Marjorie Darnell, he said. He laughed suddenly, in a burst, as if to break the somber bubble. Now you be sure to read my article on the murders, won't you? As if this had all just been a planned merry visit. She nodded. He briefly touched her hand, then walked out to the car, paisley scarf blowing out behind him in the breeze. The haiku teachers were brazenly holding hands, standing next to the whiteboard. Encore! Encore! shouted the young man with the blonde crew cut who called himself Twinge. Marjorie held up her empty glass. Will someone get me a refill? Jasper, the bald video store clerk, and Pete, the donut maker, jumped to get the scotch. They'd not so much as looked at her all weekend. Jasper's pale, round face was like what Marjorie imagined her oldest, Dickie, might have looked like when he was thirty. She hadn't seen her older sons since she left Garden City a year after meeting Truman. She'd managed to extract Calvin and Cora, the risk was too high to take all of them that first day, and Leon blocked her later attempts. They became rebellious teenagers, pilfering bourbon from their friends' parents and unable to hold down jobs. Now they visited her once a year on Thanksgiving, 
and only then if they had enough bus fare. Before she left, Leon won a big contract from a meat market in Kansas City. While his drinking stayed steady, he seemed to ignore Marjorie Moore, to stay up nights in his office at the plant. She imagined he'd become a man placated by a burgeoning demand for wholesale veal. But it was just a respite. There was a sprained arm and another black eye. Then the day finally came when she caught him slapping Cora. And the next morning, they were gone. Jasper delivered her scotch refill with Pete on his heels. Thank you, gentlemen, she said, holding up the glass. She took a long swallow. This was a better brand than she ever bought. Mixing it with Valium produced a cottony feeling in her head. She smoothed her skirt and poised her lips for the next imitation. The room was quiet. The good thing about masturbation is that you don't have to dress up for it. More laughter. The innkeeper stood in the doorway, wearing a red kerchief, grinning wide. She knew he was gay in the way she knew about Truman when he visited. The most caring men she'd ever met had been gay. She wondered how her older sons had turned out. Pictures! the lesbian shouted. Pete dug around in his knapsack on her command. Jasper moved the floor lamp over near Marjorie and took off the shade. Marjorie turned her head and looked around the room. She had them now. All eyes and ears. Well, I am about as tall as a shotgun and just as noisy. The female teacher wiped her nose, laughing. Oh, how she looked like Cora, thought Marjorie. Her blonde hair sloppily piled on top of her head. The small separation between the front teeth. If only Cora thought she was funny, enjoyed her company, threw back her head in carefree laughter as the teacher did. Marjorie felt a welling inside as if it was suddenly an 80-degree summer day. She licked her lips and said, You can say I should apologize, but to who? The innkeeper held up a bottle of champagne. I found this in the basement, he said. Whoops and hollers went all around since the scotch bottle was empty. Marjorie stood up, proud now of her imposing height. I've written a few Capote haikus, she said. Would you like to hear them? This story is copyright 2012 by Martha Clarkson. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. <laughs> <laughs>